0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. This is Chet Gray. We have a special guest in our studio today. We are going to speak with Kurt Davis, who is on the commission with the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Kurt Davis has been on the commission for quite some time. He was first appointed by Governor Jan Brewer in 2012, and he was reappointed to the commission by Governor Doug Ducey. He is in his uh, last six months on the commission. We're going to speak to him on a number of topics. Stay tuned and hopefully you learn a lot. Welcome again to another episode of Christian Hunters of America podcast. Like I said, we have Kurt Davis, who is on the Game and Fish Commission. Um, he was first appointed by Governor Jan Brewer in 2012, and each commissioner has a five-year term. That ended in 2017, and Governor Doug Ducey reappointed him in 2017. He is uh, about to finish the last six months of his term in 2022. And as you guys have seen, um, I'm sure a lot of people saw last year or earlier this year that there was applications. That's going to be going to the governor's office to see who will potentially replace him in the Phoenix area. But we, as always, we got Mike Ornoski in studio. How are you, Mike? We are doing
1: good for this beautiful uh, 60 degree weather here in Phoenix, Arizona. So it's a blessing to be here. How are you doing, Chet?
0: Doing great. And like I said, we have Kurt Davis in studio today. How are you, Mr. Good morning, Mr. Commissioner? <laughs> good morning. <laughs> exactly
2: looking forward to a few days off at christmas time with my grandkids.
0: Amen to that. That's what it's all about, absolutely
1: 100%. So well, today's uh, an exciting day for me because uh, as some of you guys may know, I'm born and raised in Arizona, specifically Phoenix and I've uh, been hunting since I can ever remember as a, a young youngster and one of my goals in life at one point was to be a game and fish officer and of course as life goes, we go in different directions and and I've been active with CHA going on 20 years now, since we did start in 2001, and I came on in 2002. And one of the things I've always done is I've spoke at the different commission meetings for topics that I believe, which was essential for what or whatever my viewpoint was or the organization. But knowing that, we always wanted to be respectful and, and to give our advice and our stance as a, an informational. And today to have Mr. Davis here, one of our commissioners on CHA's podcast, to me, is a, it's an honor, it's a privilege and, and as we always say, it's it's we're here basically to bring information that's that basically brings educational and different viewpoints, and it also kind of lets everybody get to know why we do what we do, especially in Arizona, and I think today's a, an important day for the Arizona Game and Fish Department to have one of their commissioners to take time out of their busy schedule, and during this busy time of the year to basically talk about a few topics that, for me, kind of brought a lot of heartburn, and also it it taught me something. It's funny how we're in the hunting community and we do a lot of things, and we perceive or we think we know everything, but sometimes we we're like children and we we get we learn a whole bunch of stuff. And I think today is about our growth and learning and adapting things like that. So thank you, Mister Davis, thank for being here.
2: Thank you. And as a commissioner, I can tell you in ten years, the CHA has been a credible source of information uh, as a commissioner, um, and I and I do appreciate we have you know we have. A lot of constituents that many times have very strong opinions. The CHA has always been very respectful, and <coughs> as a commissioner, I can tell you appreciate it. There's a lot of times the decisions are that you make as a commissioner are not always fun. They're they're difficult. Um, uh, But CHA has been a very credible source of information that has influenced, in a very good way, uh, decisions made by the commission.
1: Thank you. We appreciate that. And I
2: I know sometimes it's
1: hard because we feel like sometimes we may be the the black sheep because we're standing for something that may not be popular or may not be with a lot of other organizations. But, again, we try to stand for what we believe is what is the most ethical based on our personal opinions and our, our board members and, and the influences that we get from a lot of our followers and things like that. And, and again, we, the thing that I've learned, especially in leadership positions, is we can't take it personal. You know, right. we, can, we can stand on what we believe in. We can voice our concerns, try to give the facts and our, our real-life circumstances. But at, at whatever the decision is, whatever it may be, we sometimes have to just drop our guard and not take it personal and say what is best for, you know, for me, myself, my family, wherever the organization is and with conservation and as it relates to Arizona, things like that. So we do appreciate those nice compliments. So it's appreciated. Um, So with that, um, a lot of our listeners, I'm sure we we know that there's commission meetings. Um, They meet usually monthly and they have different topics. And uh, some of the topics that really jumped out to me um, at this last one was some educational stuff. And one had to do with the partnerships um, as it relates to private property. Um, I, I, we all see the state trust land, no access to the private property, these ranches, and we have some that are up in Unit 10 that charge an access fee, and we have other ones and other units that basically charge to access on their property, and that's kind of what that is. But the piece that I was kind of really eye-opening to me was knowing that there is a whole bunch of stuff behind the scenes that Game and Fish does through the commission of building these partnerships to gain access to all of this land and the resources that Game and Fish manages. So the first topic I'd like to top on is specifically with Unit 10 that kind of came out in the commission meeting, is how the commission and the Game and Fish Department is making a stance saying we want what's best for Arizona wildlife, we want what's best for Arizona hunters, and through conservation through the North American model as it relates to managing those resources of our elk and our mule deer and our antelope and all the other items that are up in Unit 10. Would you want to kind of talk about some of the topics that kind of came out during the commission meeting of why you guys reduce tags specifically for the upcoming elk and antelope seasons?
2: So it was a tough meeting. Uh, Many of your listeners may know that uh, unit, uh, the big Boquius ranch is, is literally about uh, 60% of unit 10. It is the second largest privately held ranch in the United States. Um, Now, it is full of checkerboarded state land, uh, which complicates uh, everything from access to management. That ranch is owned by the Navajo Nation, and then they have a lessee that runs a sizable, uh, very uh, large cattle operation. Over the years, the department has always tried to have a strong partnership with the ranch to maintain access for sportsmen and women, to be able to primarily, as you know, it's, it's known for, for its, both its elk and antelope populations, but as well as deer. Um, and it is, there have been a series of agreements over the years to maintain access. Um, I've been on the commission long enough now to have to actually uh, supported and participated in, in creating two of those previous agreements, including the one that we're currently operating under uh, until May. What – there's this fine line when you're dealing with private landowners, and that is one is you have to maintain access to be able to manage the wildlife. That's the number one imperative of of the department. And so as a, a, a ranch – and no ranches are really created equal. They're all different. They all have different stories, different locations, different assets, different importance, quite frankly. for You know, there's – you know, one can be a 10 – you know, a 10-star from a wildlife standpoint and another could be a two-star. And, and it's not to diminish that ranch. It's just the reality of of the department's need to manage wildlife. So access for, for sportsmen and sportswomen is the number one because uh, coupled with that is access by our professionals, wildlife managers, biologists, et cetera, uh, to be able to help have that ranch as part of the picture of managing wildlife in a particular unit. There are different, well, there's a landowner relations um, branch within the department that does nothing but um, manage relationships with landowners. And we try to incent Uh, access by being good partners. Uh, You guys are, you know, you're more than knowledgeable about the HPC projects, for example. We try to couple HPC projects with ranches who are partners. Mm -hmm. Uh, We try to work with them on problems they face from access. Now, sometimes hunters get blamed for bad things that happen on ranches, and it's not hunters. It can be just regular folks traversing people's lands and doing, you know, cutting fences, leaving gates open. But a lot of times it sometimes gets coupled with hunting. Um, We try to be on the offensive in that way, which is, look, let's create ranch rules that work for you as the private landowner. Um, Let's look at projects that can help enhance your ranch. Let's partner on making sure water is open and available Because, you know, some ranches will rotate, turn off water during certain seasons. The department will work with them to keep waters open. 99% of the relationships with ranchers are very good. Um, Some have what we call landowner uh, agreements that have, again, ranch rules. We work with them on projects. Uh, We try to uh, manage within those ranches at a, uh, with a high degree of on the, on-site on personnel moving in and out of there to help make sure that problems are diminished uh, as people access the ranch. There are some ranches that are closed, as we all know, closed to hunting, or they are specially granted access. Um, the only way they can have specially granted access, meaning you call up and that rancher is willing to give you access, we still have to be able to patrol that ranch, be able to do biological assessments, those kinds of things on that ranch. Otherwise a ranch, an area can be completely closed. If we can't get on that, on that ranch to manage, then there's not going to be uh, hunting that act, uh, activity on that ranch either. But so you have some of these that are in that pocket of they, they allow access for certain individuals. Then you have those who just have, you know, uh, what I call, I guess, my most favorite status of ranches. They allow access to any hunter. Uh, they might have sign-in, sign-out. They might have certain ranch rules. We work with them. We have projects with them for water, et cetera. Those are kind of what I call my you know favorite grade-A
0: ranches. I think a lot of people have seen those. Seen varieties. those. Yeah.
2: That's the majority of them. And then there's, the, there's special circumstance, I guess is the best way, the Big Bow, because of its size and its complexity. We've worked out agreements where we allow the ranch to serve uh, to, to charge an access fee. Now we agree on what that access fee is so that it's not at a rate that just completely obliterates almost anybody's ability to gain access. Now I realize that's in the eye of the beholder and right. it's a very tough situation. So the big bow has had an access uh, charge uh, for the last several years. There was one in the first agreement. It went up a little bit in the second agreement. In exchange, for the, they used those monies to maintain the roads, maintain the water sources, fix fences, those kinds of things. And then they had other ranch rules about not hunting on water, no OHVs, that kind of thing, which the department supported, but it kept access to our hunters. That agreement ends in May. We don't have an agreement after May. We realize we have people that are about to put in for elk units and uh, for elk and antelope in Unit 10. We did not want people to put in, get drawn, and then find out after May that there won't be an extension of that agreement and then say, I got a tag and now I can't hunt in 60% of the unit that I've been pursuing for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So we had to do something. Um, not what we wanted to do, so we reduced tags, uh, which will reduce, obviously, the number of hunters, uh, which will allow for a, a good experience in Unit 10 in the event there's no access to the Big Bokius Ranch. One of the other options, quite frankly, was just to say there's going to be no hunting period in in Big Bo. Um, we wanted to... We're still hopeful, and hopefully the Navajo Nation and the lessee will come to the table and get to an agreement by May. Um, it we won't have obviously as many tags, so we want to have fewer. We'll have fewer tags for that one season, um, so it could be kind of a bonanza season for, for those. Now, if before we go to print on the regs, we gave the department the option, if, like, tomorrow an agreement was reached, then we set a tag limit that would be higher. But we had to err on the side of caution to ensure that people knew up front what they would get into if they got a Unit 10 tag. There will be a series of communications that will go out from the department uh, to let hunters know whatever the reality is, come the day that they, we open the draw.
1: Yep, exactly. So, so similar. I think there was thirty tags or something that was reduced to, or somewhere in there. So, let's say you come to an agreement, and then you're going to put back another fifty tags. So, would the sequence be is that anybody that put in for that draw, they'd be first based on that sequential order, and during the draw, they would be issued those tags after the fact?
2: No, I, I, I honestly, I believe what will happen is is that we have until the Basically, we have until the day that we print the regs okay. to make, you know, have that call, make that call. And that's okay. coming up like now. Soon. Soon. Yes. So, that. yeah, because we don't want to create confusion, yeah. buyer remorse. Exactly. We don't want to irritate our constituents. We know, you know, how important 10 is. The other thing that could occur in the event there is not an agreement reached, and I th- you, I'm sure you heard this discussion too, that – Right now, Unit 10 is is an alternative management unit.
1: you want to explain what that means for the
2: listeners? So uh, there's always a debate in the hunting community. You guys, are, I know, are very familiar with it between, you know, uh, opportunity and quality, right? Exactly. So to try to manage, we try to manage for both uh, in simple terms. So alternative management units are built more around quality. And then other units, the vast majority of units are about opportunity. um, So we can keep as many hunters in the field as possible. Like the strip. The strip. Yes. So 10 is an alternative management unit, and so it's managed for quality. If there's not an agreement, one of the things the commission and the department can do is remove that designation and move that to another unit that we would then escalate management for quality. Okay, so I
1: think like currently if like you have a unit 9, probably unit 2 yep. 3, that would be yep. some of the ones that are managed for n- quality for, um, for an elk.
2: You nailed them. You know them. Yeah, exactly. Everybody says Yeah,
1: And pick, unit, pick another unit. another unit mm-hmm. and try to build up those herds for a higher class.
2: Quality. Which, you know, again, would be a sad – would be sad because a lot of work has gone into managing uh, unit 10 in an alternative, you know, an alternative fashion. And you give up years of doing that, but you know, the commission would be forced to be in that position. Our hope is not, I can tell you this, that the, the initial requests by the Navajo nation were there. There's one thing to have an access fee. And the commission can have a debate and discussion about whether that access fee is to a point that it basically makes it untenable for the vast majority of our constituents, or is that fee somewhat, and I realize these are, you know, in the eye of the beholder, within the realm of that an average guy can still go hunting there. That's our objective. Exactly, because it's almost like they're almost, in one aspect,
1: saying, let us still have all those tags and we can charge 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 for access. And that's going to eliminate a whole bunch of population yes. and allow this other domino effect that can really hurt yes. what the North American model stands for and what the Arizona game of fish stands for and give that, an equal opportunity for everybody.
2: That's the governor on this decision. That is, is how do we maintain it within the format of the North American model opportunity for all? And then second, be a good partner with the big Bocchius ranch, which is an important partner, but, so the the current requests they had on the table were outside that parameter. I would not, as a commissioner, be able to look at you guys in the face and/or your listeners and say that I was still protecting opportunity for all. At, at, so we we're not together yes. in this negotiation at this point. Um, but the bigger issue, because you know, you also have to you're creating you're creating a precedent as a commission and a department, uh, with any of these kinds of negotiations. And you have to think about it beyond Unit 10. And so it's, you know, to be honest with you, it was not one of the fun moments of the meeting, uh, but a necessary moment.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where I was kind of blown away, watching just the transparency and and the forthrightness of the department saying, hey, we just want to make sure everybody's aware and we're willing to make the stance because it's what's best for Arizona. You know, I think that's where we kind of we hear things, but we don't really hear it put in, the, in a blunt way saying that we're willing to make the stand to protect Unit 10, the elk and hunter access. And I thought to me that was one of the driving forces to, to have you on today was that was like an eye opener for me saying that the general public and the hunting community and everybody else, and even all the organizations need to know that we all have this perception of the commission. But here is a classic example of you guys standing for integrity, transparency and equal opportunity for all and not going to allow a private property sector restart remanaging wildlife when you guys are the managing body of wildlife.
3: Hello, everybody. This is uh, Mike. We are doing an update with the Arizona Game and Fish Department. We have now crossed into uh, 2022 after January 1st, and our Arizona Game and Fish Department has done a fantastic job negotiating a new contract. It's a one-year contract with the Big Boquias Ranch. Um, That is one of the largest ranches in Arizona. I believe it's around 720,000 acre ranch, and it makes up close to 50% of Unit 10. Um, Arizona Given Fish Department um, did negotiate a one-year contract deal with the Navajo Nation in order to allow hunting access uh, throughout the Big Bow. What this is going to do is it's going to reinstate all of the antelope and elk permits back to their original proposed before the reductions were added when there was not a contract. So we just wanna make sure that you know that if you open up the paper copies, you're gonna see a much lower tag allocation. But if you go onto the electronic copy, you'll see the actual numbers that they approve. So we just wanna give an update um, since we're getting ready to launch this podcast um, because it is critical information um, that allows those that are listening to the podcast um, to understand that if they do open up the regulations, you're gonna see a big change in numbers. And this is also a great testament to our Arizona Game and Fish Department that they are doing everything they can in their power to gain uh, private property access that will allow hunting for more tags, more opportunity. And as we know, as we heard in the earlier podcast, um, they do have Unit 10 as a exceptional unit that they want to have quality animals there and grow big bulls and big antelope and have those opportunities for hunters. So thanks again for joining us and we'll continue on with the podcast.
0: Yeah. Like we said, we, uh, we've discussed it numerous times on previous episodes. We've never stopped learning. Right. Um, a lot of people have preconceived ideas on government entities. Um, everybody (laughs) has a preconceived notion on law enforcement, or if you've had a negative contact with a wildlife manager, then you don't ever want to deal with a game warden again, but we can learn from those experiences. Right. And, what Mike and what uh, Mr. Davis are talking about is we um, are, like he said, are setting that precedent. If we allow, it's not the same correlation as if you give an inch, they take a mile, but it can go down that slippery slope where you do set that precedent on um, your kids and your kids' kids may not have those access rights. Um, we've gone accustomed to everybody having, you know, Unit 10 rights. I know a lot of people really, really enjoy those antelope hunts in Unit 10 and as Mr. Davis said, you know, it could be granted to another unit should that agreement fall through. Um, it would take a number of years in order to get that age class right. where that where that unit is. And um, you're going to have, you know, lower number of tags or more people putting in for uh, for points only. And it, it would unfortunately reduce the number of people out there enjoying uh, elk hunting and antelope hunting and, right. and just being able to to enjoy God's creation. So it, it'll take a long time. And to get another unit up to that, should that fall through, we pray over the next six months that that agreement is upheld or comes to some sort of mutual agreement, a mutual understanding that 10 will allow, allow that access and, um, and not be such an egregious uh, fee that they want that people can't pay. Cause it, it would, it would really tarnish it if you're paying X amount of money for, that species and they are wanting now to double it and you're paying as much as the tag is as well. Um, especially for a non-resident, they already are ex- experiencing a high number of, uh, costs. And even for residents, if you're coming from another unit and you want a rifle antelope tag in unit 10 and you live in Tucson, that's no different than you coming from another state and, and working your butt off in order to get that animal, yep and um, a lot of units offer trophy-quality antelope, but everybody knows 10 is, is up there at the top.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. I'm, I am cautiously optimistic this will work its way through. It, I don't think it will work its way through for this draw, but I think reasonable people will come to the conclusion that the agreement that currently exists with the big bow, and there could be some changes – is a is a good agreement for both the nation navajo nation and for sportsmen and women um and and that's where we just got to keep it
1: exactly and i I think that's important too. and making a stance that we're going to reduce those tags to a number that does not include the big bow and to still give that same opportunity and the trophy quality for those individuals that that apply and obtain those reduced tags and but it's true, though. It, it just shows you the power that a private property can try to push, but it also
2: shows the power
1: and the stance from the commission side of we're going to do what's right for what's best for everybody with the equal opportunities. So.
2: We did leave cow tags at the same number so that management could continue yeah. in the event you get to an agreement. I mean, so yeah. that was also part of the...
0: When they see the water bill uh, pile up from how much elk drink and, and <laughs> how much extra hay they're going to be having to put out there... I mean, dollars and uh, cents talk, yep. and hopefully it doesn't get to that. But yep. we all know, we all know during our droughts how much those animals require water. And we've had previous podcasts where we've talked to Dan Bradford, who hauls water all over the place <laughs> up north, and it is crucial. Even when we have snowmelt, even when we have good monsoons, some of those catchments run dry just because of the amount of livestock and or game species coming in and hitting that tank uh we can't go without water they can't go without water it is crucial to life and when you have a cooperative agreement and you have um volunteers that are given access a lot of hunters we all are conservationists at heart some of them bring in their own water Um, obviously if you're hunting an area you want that animal and those species in order to have um high quality of growth or given more opportunity, you could go in and, you know, haul some water yourself or get with a warden and let them know that a float is broken or, you know, certain circumstances. So we're looking out and it's helping beneficial to the ranch as well because their livestock are going to be hitting those same water tanks.
1: Exactly true. All right. So with that, I think we'll jump to the the next topic that kind of really opened my eyes at the commission meeting was Listening to the open comment period that there was this huge amount of individuals calling to basically remove our, our lion hunting, our bear hunting, and our bobcat hunting. It was uh, very apparent that there was an attack basically on the Game and Fish, the commission, and the North American model, model of, of basically managing wildlife that has the ecosystem that it's all in balance. And I can tell you just watching, I was actually on my phone listening, and I, I heard Mr. Davis multiple times remind the callers of what they were saying was not truthful based on a trophy status and all of these other things. And so I ended up calling in. I was actually on hold, and, and I actually changed my, my statement to basically protect the interest of bear hunting, lion hunting, things like that. So um, I would like to, you to kind of speak on the great stuff that we do uh, from the Arizona Fish Department on managing our, our lions and our bears because there's very specific rules and regulations. There's seasons open and close, And you guys have very specific seasons that basically when you have a female objective or the number of lions per se, that season is closed. And it's all on equal balance based on the elk and the antelope and all the other wildlife that you guys manage. And I think there was a statistic of how many different wildlife species do you guys manage? Over
2: 820 wildlife species are managed by... It's the most species of wildlife of any state that can't count ocean fish. Wow, incredible.
0: Uh, A lot of people don't realize the... The amount of animals, everybody that doesn't live in Arizona thinks of (laughs) cactus and desert and the wild, wild west. We have every terrain, every habitat that a lot of people don't realize if they've never visited here. And the amount, the abundance of wildlife is unreal. I had no idea we had that many.
2: So you, you nailed it too, because we're only missing jungle of the seven uh,
0: habitat zones.
2: We're only missing jungle. We have the other six. It creates a much more complex environment in which to manage wildlife. Uh, And thank goodness we have one of the finest departments in the country because the complexity of balancing all of these species. And those calls the other day, the frustrating part is they want to call in about one of, I don't, you know, whatever the total number of huntable species, but 40, let's call it. There's 820. And they all have to be balanced, from bats to lions, yep. right? And and that we do remarkably well in a growing state um, that has a t- you know large regions of tough to live in habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, we have done extraordinarily well, um, and including, I mean, one of the other briefings in the meeting was the about the desert Sonoran. Um, yep
1: or exactly, our yep. the
2: that's a great success story those animals were about to be extinguished from God's creation and they're not yep. and it was the work of game and fish professionals volunteers it's about hauling water it's about having relationships in Mexico to have you know viable populations uh, genetically one of those great success stories they don't call in about that mm-hmm. they call yep. in with unscientific, facts in their minds about lion and bear populations in Arizona, which are very healthy. And they are managed to a level so that the other 820 species can also prosper. Absolutely. Um, and as you as you stated eloquently, we have a diverse management system on lions and bears, which includes closing units based on population. Uh, we don't hunt cubs. We don't, I mean, you can go yep. through the list. Yep. What they should be calling, quite frankly, is giving a, an award and a thank you uh, okay. to the department to perpetuate those species because we know a couple of those species, we go back in time, yep. man had more of a mythological view of those species and many of them were hunted to eradication. Absolutely. Right? Definitely. For um, sure. And We've not done that in Arizona. We've done the reverse, which is maintain a very viable, strong population. We have seasons set up so they can breed. Yep. Um, and we've learned a lot about, you know, over the years as as a department, as conservationists, about the necessary roles that, that these creatures play in balancing the entire ecosystem. Um, and so... We do it pretty pretty well. Absolutely. And you try to point out to them uh, in California where some of their friends successfully banned lion hunting. They have extraordinary problems with with lions, problem lions. They're game and fish. Very close to
0: residential areas. Yes. In, in metropolitan areas, they're having large cat problems.
2: Yes. And their game and fish department has to kill more of them than hunters did. Incredible. I think you which so reduces
0: that. the, the yeah. money yes. aspect, in, in and and you're you know. having
2: wardens wasting their time yep. out doing what hunters do to keep as part of the management. Correct. You know, as we talked about guidelines in that meeting, you know, yep. the, those discussions you guys are very familiar with them, but they can be very you know they are they're complicated yep. and they're um, they're all about science. Sometimes it's not the most exciting subject in the world. But those guidelines on our, you know, is really the the window into how hunters are used as one of the management tools for those eight hundred twenty species, and what species may be taken that are quote unquote game animals. Part of the take rates are based on also protecting habitat and capability for other species that are not hunted. Makes sense. And so hunters are a central point in being one of the tools in managing wildlife. And so if you work to eradicate that, like some of those callers are really up to, the HSUS is about eradicating Mm -hmm. hunting. They have money in Cayman banks. They basically run a criminal syndicate. What they do is they go to old, pe- older people and and well and good-hearted people and say, "We want you to donate money because we want you to t- we want to help take care of dogs and cats." A lot of people think they're giving to their local humane society. They know that. That's why they created that name. Interesting. Fool people into giving them money. They give less than one percent of their money to uh, cat, dog, and cat shelters. Um, one of the most recent cases was the floods in Houston. Yep. They go up on TV down there and say, "What well, we have all these displaced cats and dogs from the floods. Send us money right away so we can provide them homes." They don't send money to Houston to take care of those animals. So what they do is they take well-meaning people's dollars. They turn. They have Cayman bank accounts. Um, red flag. Yeah, red flag. Yeah. They, have a, they had a longtime leader of the organization. His name was Wayne Pacelli, who had to finally be forced out because he had so much sexual harassment cases mounting against him. But he's still a consultant to the HSUS. They still pay him. But they take these people's hard-earned money, pretend like they're helping dogs and cats, and they run political initiatives around the country. They're very sophisticated in their operation. They know what words. You heard those words That's used in the meeting. 100. They would always refer yep. to trophy hunting. Exactly. I try to remind them in the calls. In Arizona, we have no such thing. It's not in statute. It's not in rules, and it's not in our regulations. So you're talking about something that doesn't exist in Arizona, but they know using that term irritates the public. So thus, they train their people to use that term. Uh, they know that they're not going to just run a straight-up, ban hunting effort, they yeah. start species at a time. Arizona's not the only place that they do this. Yeah. And then they have spin-off entities that have other names that sound really nice, yeah. uh, that also are part of this consortium or syndicate, as I prefer to call it. But that's how they operate. Yeah. And they tried it in Arizona a few years back, if you yeah. remember the they first do. attempt. Yeah. Um, that led a group of us Uh, numerous people involved uh, to establish a political action committee and a C4 called Conserve and Protect Arizona. Correct. Uh, For the purpose of fighting that, as you know, um, we were successful in keeping them off the ballot. Um, Doesn't mean they're not going to come back. Doesn't mean they're not operational in numerous states right now. Yep. You guys have, you know, you read the national headlines. You know every time there's a loss of the management tool of hunting in a state, They are involved in it, plain and simple.
0: For all of our listeners um, that don't know, HSUS stands for Humane Society of the United States. As Mr. Davis said, it has nothing to do with our Arizona Humane Society where you go and adopt a pet. It's an intentional play on words, as we've discussed, to pull at those heartstrings. Um, The referendum that they wanted to bring to initiative a couple years ago was the Big Cat's and to remove any type of mountain lion and bobcat hunting. And they used the jaguars and ocelots and lynx in their initiative. And if any of you know, we have jaguars and that are federally protected, ocelots that are federally protected. They are not huntable species. And there are no lynx in Arizona. Those are cold weather. Yep. Uh, the, the day, day we
2: have them, we're going to have bigger problems. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly.
0: <laughs> and this is, We could go down the rabbit hole if the last 18 months hasn't shown all these different entities and groups that uh, cause those misinformation in order to you to sway your beliefs. And in the time and age that we are in in social media, it it is real time information. You don't have to wait for that newspaper to come out. You don't have to go to your watering hole uh, at work for the gossip. You get that every single day. And it's very easy to get that type of information out. Um, Game and Fish and Hunters base all of our information on on science, you want real-time data. That's kind of why we won't go into this subject, but the, the allocating of the certain tags and, and being able to have digital tags for you to do that real-time information, um, kind of like the old-school check-ins, you're getting that real-time data that, that can provide that information uh, so that those species are healthy and strong for multiple generations in the future. So everyone, please spread the word. HSUS or Humane Society of the United States isn't going away. They will have those postcards that are handed out at banks and in shopping, initi- you know, shopping malls and whatnot talking about those big cats or whatever their, their next plan is. Nobody knows. They're not going away. Do your due diligence. Uh, do your research. As Mr. Davis already said, their money, uh, uh, like a lot of nonprofits in that realm, a small percentage goes into what they what they portray that their their beliefs are. A lot of it goes into the operating costs or paying for the people in those organizations. Nonprofit doesn't mean that those people aren't in the market of making lots of money for themselves.
2: You nailed it. That's a great point because the vast majority of their money is salaries and pensions. In that organization, if you go to their filings uh, that they have to do with the federal government, you 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 nailed it. This the this it, they now they have multiple lobbyists at the legislature. This they, they're incredibly well funded. Mm-hmm. Um, they are they have they use polling data. Oh, they yeah. also realize that Arizona eighty percent of our population is urbanized. Yep. We are the second most urbanized state. In the United States, only behind Rhode Island, we are more urbanized than New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, wow. and so with
0: that, no one would ever think that.
2: No one would ever would think that, but we uh, those are those are f- statistical. That's real data. If you have highly urbanized populations who don't have outdoor experience, conservation experience, it's pretty easy to start convincing people. Yeah. That we're about to not have any lions or not have any bears, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a big lie. Uh, it's a big lie. It's not truthful. Yeah. But in today's world, and with the application of digital media, you can start fooling a lot of people about the truth. Yeah. Thus, the department, as you know, also we have the commission has had the department engaged in a very strong educational outreach um, campaign. Uh, which is ongoing year in and year out, because we're also a three-people-in, two-people-out state. Three people move here, two people move out.
0: Maricopa County is
2: a churn, right? So you have to educate, 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 educate. And so for the first time over the last now six six or seven years, we've had the department engaged in in continuous education, reaching, quite frankly, out to people who are not – Sportsmen and women, which is so that they can understand how we use science, Mm -hmm. that hunters are part of the management of these species, and the objective is to perpetuate all 820 of them and have them available for them to go see, even if they're not sportsmen or women. And so this is, you know, this is what we've been trying to do because of the reality of what our state looks like. And right. anybody that's driven a Phoenix or Tucson freeway in the last yeah. year realizes they see a lot of plates from a lot of other places on those cars.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because when I was a kid, and, I'd
0: And you know, we pray day. they don't bring those ideologies <laughs> from such <laughs> such states. <laughs> right.
1: But it's, it's true. I mean, back when I was growing up, Game and Fish offices was at I-17 and Greenway, 23rd Avenue, roughly. Right. I would, I grew up. Right there in that neighborhood, and I'd get on my mini bike, and I would end up at Bell Road and 35th Avenue and be desert, and I'd have a shotgun on my back. And now that's like center of Phoenix. I mean, anymore, I mean, it's it's truly amazing. And scene. back then,
2: maybe a ninety percent probability you could get to Flagstaff without there being an accident. Absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent.
1: That is exactly true. Absolutely true. A dot, <laughs> please fix that. Exactly. Make it four lanes, not three lanes. <laughs> that's true.
2: But there's other there's other ramifications when you have large uneducated swaths of folks too, that like, for example, one of the complex issues, and I know you do not have time to go into it, but burrow mismanagement by the federal government. Huge, right? huge. A lot of people, Oh, isn't it great to see burrows? No, it's not oh. so great. They're destroying habitat that's used by desert tortoises, by yeah. uh, different kind of uh, mice that are important, you know, to the long term yeah, name it all, right? Snakes, these things, and they're growing at a rate that is untenable. Yep. And the federal government has failed in its responsibilities. And now we have to build, ADOT is having you spend a million dollars a mile putting fence up I-17 to stop boroughs from killing motorists. Yep. Those are all taxes on us mm-hmm. to take care of something that should have been taken care of and, and scientifically shouldn't even exist here. That's the kind of thing they should be focused on.
0: Yep. And you have all those people from out of state putting hay that we've seen when you're hunting in in 20s and the 21 in their backyard in North Phoenix and Black Canyon City and Anthem. And they got hay hanging over their back fences while you're glassing and they're feeding the burrows. Feeding the burrows. There's nothing else out there that's eating Uh, that.
2: A scourge.
1: An absolute scourge. No, it's true, because I had a 20B javelina archery tag last year, and I counted more burros. than I did javelina. That. And pigs are, you know, they have their herds, you know, and I glass up a herd of six, but then there'd be a herd of eight to 12 burros, 300 yards from Right. It's just, it's mind-boggling. And I'm sure, because
2: I, I, I've been a long-time 20B yep. javelina muzzleloader hunters, which was my favorite unit for many, many years, yep. personally there has been an impact by the burrows on the Havelina population. Huge,
1: drastically. I mean, where I grew up as a kid, because I, I shot my first when I was 13, so I'm going back almost 35 years ago plus, I we rarely saw burrows. And we used to have pockets of pigs at different areas. I can go to those same places up till about 10, 12 years ago and find those same pigs. And those are herds of 8 to 12 pigs normally. Now I'm seeing groups of 2 to 4. and i'm seeing burrows on top of everything and what i used to think were hey there's a prickly pear patch getting tore up and i walk up and that's all burrows i mean just the the tracks and the the waters and everything else it's it's devastating it truly is yeah
2: if if they were true conservationists that's what they would be talking about yep it's true absolutely Uh, uh, those are the real issues uh uh, feral horse population.
1: Oh, unit nine. I mean, look at unit yeah. nine now. It's devastated by if forces. If you're
2: truly a conservationist, then you should be engaged in the in the battle yep. to ensure that we somehow we have the federal government get to back to managing, yep. at least get back to the the rates that are supposed to be in the in the horse management areas mm-hmm. and keep those those animals confer- confined to those horse management areas. If they cared about yep. lions as much as they say they do, they would be engaged in that fight. All the conversations I've ever had, all the meetings I've gone to in 10 years on the commission related to horse populations, burrow populations, yep. I've never seen the HSUS there. Not Amazing. once. Amazing. You
1: think Actions they you think speak louder care. than words. It's true. Yeah. Exactly true. Exactly true. For sure.
2: But they have compounded on the commission about completely inane falsehoods about populations of species we do manage um, and bring in data that is nowhere resembles the reality on the ground. Bobcats are a great example. You know, our best estimates are plus 10,000 bobcats in Arizona but we're not at risk of losing sure. a bobcat right. population no,
1: for sure and I know listening it was like everybody had the same statement and then they just added a few little other keywords Yes. and that's what it was it was like you can only hit, read that statement so many times and correct them so many times and that's where my frustration was is these people are just basically robots they're basically yeah. just giving a piece of paper call and read it and they did their duty and got their check box you know yeah. for their good deed or whatever and they had no concept of what they were even talking about
0: do we have any idea where our mountain line population is? Talking about that, I'll be think- wrong
2: on this, but I'll give you a. It's it's north of thirty. It's somewhere north of thirty five hundred. Okay, it's somewhere in that realm. It's in, you know I, I'm going to be, scientist. You know our biologists yeah. would laugh at me, say that. Don't let commissioners cite yeah, figures, exactly. but it's somewhere in that. We'll just um, add I'm an ish thirty five
0: hundred ish. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and. Is there any, without getting into we'd have to speak to a biologist, is there any estimate on people with hounds versus just seeing them during another hunt that that are able to harvest them?
2: They would have that data. It's a great question. That I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I, I mean, I know the number of houndsmen is, is a pretty small number.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but that's another thing that they love attacking. Uh, yes, yeah, Absolutely it's unfair and all the reasons that they think that it's unfair,
2: but the the bottom line is we need hunters to manage mountain lion populations. We can't manage them without hunters. They there's the other biological tools won't meet the needs. If again, we want to have viable antelope populations, correct. If we want to have viable deer populations, if we want to have viable elk populations, uh, if we you want viable javelina populations, all, you, you, you have to have hunters engaged in the management of that apex predator. Absolutely, for sure.
0: Um, and, and no different than coyotes, states, no different than, right? A lot yeah. of other states rely on Arizona because, correct me if I'm wrong, some of our animals that we've had success with have been transplanted in other states, just like we've relied on yes. on Mexico or other states to help us. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we've we've trans um, located elk, but I know a buddy. To West of ours, Virginia
2: was the last place. Okay, to reintroduce them in West Virginia. Think about that. That's incredible. Fifty two were sent to West Virginia. I think probably about a year and a half. To, probably just before COVID. Okay. They were transferred to West Virginia to, to attempt to reestablish them in a place they've been – they were eradicated well over 100 years ago.
0: Have we played any part in Oklahoma or Wisconsin that you're aware of?
2: I don't know Oklahoma and Wisconsin. We do – we've done some bison transfer. Okay. So
0: um,
2: – but I don't think it was Oklahoma. Okay. Wisconsin, no. Not – and I don't want to say, because I don't know yeah, about every, know for sure. we, we get briefed on these in over 10 years. Some of them sure. go in, you know, I forget, absolutely. Um, but you're absolutely right. We, and then we have, you know, we have Gould's Turkey coming back because, oh yeah, huge, right, that, success. that was a, that was a deal that was made on, mm-hmm. so we could
0: reestablish that population. And uh, you don't have to go to Mexico where, are one of the only you know. states, I don't, does New Mexico have Gould's?
2: I think they do now. Okay. They've been on the same trajectory as us, but you're right that relationship with Mexico is really important for uh, snoring Desert Pronghorn. It's very important for wolf. Mm-hmm. If 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 we want to truly again, this is one of these discussions that you have sometimes I have when I get the phone calls and emails that say I hate wolves or whatever. Okay. If if you actually believe in the reestablishment of the wolf to be historically accurate and to be biologically accurate, 90% of the wolf population of the Mexican gray wolf would be in Mexico. 10% would be in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Interesting. I didn't know that. If you want them to be in their historic range. So I, you know, we get beat up for you're not allowing them north of the I-40. Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah. It's not their historic range. Right. Smart. Their historic range is from where we have them now down into Mexico. Well, you have to have a relationship with Mexico, which we do. We actually have on-the-ground people in Mexico as a department that work on issues of bats, wolves, (laughs) pronghorn. I mean, you you know, there are lots of species that don't recognize the border.
0: Right. Sure. Um, Absolutely.
2: And – if you wanna uh, if you wanna manage scientifically. So ultimately the wolf, the wolf can be fully flourish when we achieve ninety percent of the of the population being in in, in Mexico, which means about three roughly three hundred people use the number two seventy six, three hundred in Arizona and New Mexico and three thousand in Mexico.
1: Interesting. I didn't know that. Learn
0: something uh, We're at what, a hundred and something, two
2: yeah, new counts will come out. They've been doing really well. We we do a, a thing called cross fostering. Right before we uh, the feds would want to release what we call naive adult wolves, right, raised in pens. Somebody throws you know a piece of steak, elk steak over the fence yeah. a couple times a day. Our our scientists have figured out that the best way to achieve wolves that don't become problem wolves. Don't begin to look at cattle as a, uh, mm-hmm. as a living, yeah. <laughs> as a species of a buffet yeah. is to cross foster, which is uh, a ma- a mama wolf has her den. She might have a couple offspring and the timing of this, these guys, this is where I give our scientists a lot of credit. They have a wolf that's been wolves that have been born in captivity at roughly the same a couple weeks old, same age. They go in and they tranquilize the mother who has two of the natural-born wolves, or three, or one—just right. depends on what her litter is. They tranquilize that wolf, and then they bring the the captivity-born, roughly the same age, while she's asleep. They insert it. You know, they 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 jumble it up so it gets the odor of the other young wolves and the mom and blah blah. And the mom wakes up and says. I only had two, now I have four. <laughs> Interesting.
0: And, and it's, crea- it's it diversifying the genetic diversity yes. as well. Yes. Because you're introducing New Mexico. And Mexico
2: she, she's raising those wolves. To be wild. To be wild. Wow. Not want to hang around ranches and look at <clears throat> people's ranch dogs,
0: their cattle. Right.
2: That is a slower way of doing it. But a much more effective way, and so for, they call it cross fostering. And so we've been cross fostering for a number of years now, and the population has been growing. And one of the reasons it's been growing is the wolves have been more wild and less chance they're going to have intersections with man.
1: Mm-hmm. Smart.
2: Um, so the wolf, po- the wolf issue, and we, and you know this is done. It's a very difficult issue. It's done, and you know, in working hard with ranchers uh and we're and you know there's there's losses that are paid to ranchers as there should be and that's still Uh-oh. occurring right Cause still I know occurring. a lot of
0: people in 27 in the 3c and out Al- that alpine area they they thought it had died and that the ranchers weren't reimbursed for predation but that yep. still is an effect yes correct? there's
2: an actual board that awards the for the losses.
0: And they can show that a wolf caused that. Yes.
2: You have to go out and blah, blah, blah. And you know, it, it, is it sometimes a pain process? Yes. You know, it can be a pain, but there is a process. The objective. So the, the state, the commission and the department has two choices. One, we're involved in managing this population and reintroducing them or two, the feds do it on their own. And we don't <coughs> want that. Right. Exactly. So, because with that will come, quite frankly, complete disregard for local landowners and everything. So but also, as conservationists, I'm proud of the fact that that our grandchildren, great grandchildren will be able yep. to go out, set up a tent, and hear a wolf howl. If we believe in all of God's creatures, mm-hmm. we have to believe in all of God's creatures. It's true. Not just some of them. Absolutely. Now yep. sometimes is it hard. Sometimes is That's there sure. conflict? Yes. It doesn't mean that objective shouldn't be pursued. And I'm, I'm actually extraordinarily proud of the department's work because there's now a much higher acceptance among ranchers uh, because they've seen that with Game and Fish involved, they're trying to do this the right way. Yeah. So it, it – it, and it doesn't – again, there's days I'm sure they get really angry. But at the end of the day, they're going to be part of a, a narrative and a part of a story that all of us can tell our yeah. grandchildren that you helped pay for. And help participate in reestablishing a long lost species. That's, yep. that's a wonderful thing.
0: And it'll continue with us managing it when they meet that, yes. when they meet that threshold where yes. Wisconsin going back to that, where I have no concept of how their game and fish uh, works, but I know a lot of people from that Midwest that go and want to hunt that, the elk that have been reintroduced there. You have giant timber wolves in that area that, they don't have a season on, unfortunately. Right. And, you know, some people here use that as an argument that we're, one, our, our, our wolves are about half that size and don't always target the same species. And they had, they have a, a, a long way to go before they reach that population. But I get their side too, that if you introduce a species like elk into Wisconsin and you have a huge thriving wolf population that are substantially bigger than ours a different subspecies altogether and then all the elk get wiped out and you're you know you're heartfelt
2: then you haven't man right you you haven't managed right and that you know one of the things it's called a 10j rule in our 10j rule which establishes the number of elk that would exist in arizona and new mexico there are kill thresholds uh if they were to knock down the elk and deer population by a certain percentage, then there's management action taken. Quite frankly, the population's nowhere near right. hitting those, those uh, negative impacts on elk and deer, not even close. But there do exist in there, which provides then specific management objectives that would occur related to the wolf if those targets, if you saw that decimation of the elk herds, mm-hmm. then there would be management actions taken on the wolf side to keep that balance between uh between the two populations i can tell you we're Mm -hmm. not anywhere near right
1: it's good to know great information
0: yeah and you want to discuss i know mike learned a bunch about the the aerial and the drone flying aspect (laughs) that was covered over the last one
1: that is true because one of the other things that came up in the commission is actually there was a couple of gentlemen that came that had an elk tag And they were flying, if I remember correctly, it was 13 days or something two weeks before their season. And their perception was that they could fly because they were well outside the 48-hour rule. And where I was educated as somebody that's born and raised, and I I take pride in reading the regs and understanding the regs, and I had one of those slap moments in my face saying, I have no idea what I'm even talking about or what I believed in. And I think that's where the commission did a really good job of educating of what that flying rule was And it also showed that those individuals really had no concept. They actually believed the same thing that I believed. Mm -hmm. And then the commission looked at the whole picture, and and there was a great outcome, in my opinion, on that. So I think for our listeners and even for all of us hunters out there, there's a misunderstanding of what the 48-hour fly rule means. And would you want to kind of expand on what that means and what that rule means and how it affects when there's other seasons that are going with that?
2: To try to simplify it, and I, and I it, again, I understand why there's some confusion on this, and and why a earnest person would say, uh, "I'm going to be in a plane, but it's going to be 72 hours before my hunt. I'm good." Okay. Bottom line is this: to simplify it, can't be flying within 48 hours of any hunt in that unit. Meaning, you if if there's a hunt before your hunt, which was was going on in this case, there was a, yep. a hunt. Occurring, yep. They were flying during somebody else's hunt. Correct. And they thought, oh, I'm still, I'm more than 40. I'm 13 days out. You're still flying in somebody else's hunt. You can't do that. So you have to look at, are there hunts going on as your first check? Yep. And the second check is the 48 hours, right? Correct. If you really want to simplify it. The reason for that, I know some people say, well, what does it matter if a guy's flying around during somebody else's hunt one is hunter quality, uh, op- uh, their experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you want planes flying at a thousand feet above your hunt, right? Exactly so, true. so that's a big no. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. there, that's there's that. Mm-hmm. Number two is to be able to ascertain: are they really? Are they really looking at animals for their hunt thirteen days later, or are they potentially looking at their best friends down on the ground? Mm, that's exactly right. true. And for law enforcement to be able to ascertain that difference is huge. Yeah, d- big problem. So to keep it simple, as complicated as it is, don't be engaged in flying uh, over a unit during any hunt. Always be 48 hours outside of any hunt, whether it's yours or another. That's the
0: the two big key takeaways.
2: Now, these gentlemen, you know, you're on the commission, you're evaluating, you know, people see kind of the end of the process. But we have a book that's, you know, (laughs) three, four inches thick. That has all of the reports from the officers. It has pe- people's previous engagement with the department, if they've had any. It has other criminal background. I mean, you can look at the f- a little bit more of the full picture of the, the totality person, of the of circumstances. The yep. Yeah, yep. these individuals that came in, and and also, quite frankly, when people show up, uh, many people that come up for revocations sometimes they don't show up. They're like. Uh, one, it's, it's not, they don't believe it's worth their time. Or two is they don't, maybe they're embarrassed by what they did or they don't want somebody else to see them, whatever it is. These gentlemen show up. They tell us their side of the story. We asked the officers, I'm sure you're right, we right. asked the officers how were they in the engagement because yep. somebody that's up front right out of the gate is different than somebody that for two days, Yep. Misleads the officer, and then says, "Oh, you know, I changed my mind. Now I'm going to tell you the truth." Exactly. So you look at all of those things. These individuals were good guys. Yep. Made a bad decision, and they were treated that way by the commission, which is they ended yep. up with having to do hunter safety and no revocation. Yep. Huge. Uh, and it was unanimous yep. by the commission, I believe, on that on that vote. So you you meet people like that yep. along the way on the commission. You meet some other people that I'm sure any of us would like to meet out back <laughs> to, oh, yeah. um, yep.
0: because they are, you know, true hunters don't poach, don't and poach don't, and right, yeah. can't and stand don't behave poachers.
2: unethically in the field yep, exactly. and use technology to an advantage that an animal doesn't have a reasonable opportunity to elude detection. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the standard, right? Yep. Does an animal have a reasonable opportunity There's no sport in that. Right. And we have to be able to also explain it that to the 80% of people in Arizona who live in urban areas, vast majority of them don't hunt. If we can go to them and say, this is how we engage in the field. This is what we allow and we don't allow. This is the fair chase mechanisms we use. This is how we've limited technology uh, in a dry, drought, arid state. Um, these, those are things that are important to project to the public over the long haul. Mm-hmm. Cause if I show the public certain, if, if you showed, if you showed Arizonans a bait machine being driven, a corn feeder being driven through a field in Arizona on a deer hunt, most of those people will say, I don't think that's meeting right fair chase standards. And I'm not happy that you are doing that and thus I'm willing to penalize you as a sportsman. Other places there can be more, you know, can be more culturally accepted or whatever it is, but, you know, commission here has to deal with the fact that we're dealing with a lot of desert land. We're dealing with an arid state, whether even in our snow regions we're dealing with population growth. We're dealing with, um, the increased capability of weaponry, naturally, right? You guys know that your bows are different than they were twenty years sure. ago. My muzzleloader is different than it was oh, yeah. twenty. Five hundred yards out the muzzleloader, it's
1: incredible. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, I have a friend that does it; it blows me away.
2: So, wh- how do you how do you balance all of that and be able to look at both the hunting community and the non hunting community and say we do it right in Arizona? There is respect for the animal, its ability to elude detection. It's a sport. It's an important sport that's used to manage wildlife. The people who do it are honorable. And when we catch the ones that aren't, they pay a price for it. Mm-hmm. And in Arizona, I think we can check those boxes. Quite frankly, probably more than in most states, we can check those boxes. And we collectively, as sportsmen, should be proud of that. Even if we have skirmishes and fights about what some sure. of that means from time to time, at the end of the day, that's the global objective, is to, is to truly have the most ethical opportunity for people, for everyone, um, is really the objective. Yep. Um, And I think most of our constituent groups are great proponents of that. Again, there can be nuanced arguments over what is and what isn't and all that. And that doesn't mean somebody's wrong. It's you know. People can agree to disagree. Yes.
0: and, And like we've said before, the last 18 months have, or the last several years, it, people need to extend that olive branch and be able to agree to disagree without going to blows, without being so polarized that you can't even talk to that person. You need to have that human interaction. Sit down. You can explain how you feel that person, whether a government entity or just another hunter or someone from the public, and be able to talk your viewpoints yes. without going you know, ballistic. Exactly. And it is nowadays on everything, it seems like. And, and
2: you see it as a commissioner, to be honest with you. the Sometimes the ramp-up of rhetoric uh, gets oh, I'm, I can only gets pretty, um, <laughs> pretty nasty. I sometimes kid with new commissioners as they come on that if you're doing what you're supposed to do as a commissioner, you will not leave the commission more popular. Um, <laughs> so just understand that you're going to have, you're going to have over time, you're going to have people that are going to be upset with some of the things that you decide, but you have to keep focused on. Is your objective to perpetuate this sport and this opportunity and this management tool for your great grandchildren? Is it to perpetuate 820 species so that your great grandchildren can go out and see them, hear them, smell them, all of those things. That's your objective. And whenever you can establish the most honorable way to achieve those results so that the public who does not engage in what we do says, you know what, those are good people and they do fund conservation. They're funding 76% of all conservation. The department gets not a single dime of taxpayer money. You and I pay for what they do. And, Thus, you better keep the opportunity available or there will be no funding for conservation if we can't do what we do. And on top of that, I, we want, I know you're, the very name of your organization signifies of what we want to do as a total among sportsmen and women, which is be the most ethical, yep. fair sportsmen and women possible. And again, if a commission's part of their job is sometimes is to be that conscience, yep. and it can get difficult. And there can be oh, yeah. good people yep. that disagree with you and may not like you temporarily. Hopefully over time yep. they, they will respect that. That's the global picture a commission yep. sometimes has to look at. Um, and it's tough. Yep. It can be tough. It also is, as I depart my 10 years, the – it's an honor of a lifetime to be able to serve on a commission. It's awesome. Um, It really is an honor of a lifetime. And I wouldn't give back any moments from it other than I wish, you know, there's still some opportunity for all issues that I um, uh, wish that, you know, maybe I'd gotten, gotten done. Um, I have concerns about auction, the auction tags and what Mm -hmm. are they truly opportunity for all. Uh, I don't think most people can afford $250,000 checks, but you probably noticed we did a special draw. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you participated in it. That well, I, did. I, did. I did. I did, and a friend <laughs> of mine for daughter
1: uh, drew the Mueller tag. Nice. So
2: All were residents, by the way. Really? that drew the, the six. But the most important thing of that, what happened there, it proved a theory that some of us had that if you provided that kind of opportunity – to everyone, you would generate more money than you would off of an auction tag. Guess what? You did? Um, we did. $849,000 were generated off that right special on. draw. And think about it. Those are you know one, two-week tags. Yep. Imagine, if, in my opinion, this is one commissioner's opinion, if they were
0: one year long. Like a normal governor's tag. Or- yes.
2: So I, I hope, as I depart, that the commission – really takes a look at that because I'm not convinced, and I know good people can disagree, but I'm not convinced that auction tags are truly opportunity for all. And is there a better way to generate the same or more revenue? Because ultimately all that revenue goes to projects, Mm -hmm. right? That wouldn't change.
0: It's still going back to the species that the the auction or said raffle was for.
2: Yes. So, you know i hope that that is because i think that's an important notion i i i would guess the three of us will never get one of those tags <laughs> yeah, that not um, unless i never. win the Powerball this week yeah, <laughs> yeah never. Um, i'd like to see where every hunter has that i like that that opportunity yeah. so there's those those things that i wish you know maybe i'd been able to help push them now you know we did go to last year we combined the we moved three of the auction tags the the Havelina, a lion, and a bear, and did the uh, claws and paws with mm-hmm. the big game super raffle. Mm-hmm. Highly successful. Highly successful. More okay. successful than they were straight options. Yep. It just it shows the power of a large constituency versus the power of a small number of people who could meet yep. that finance. That's not to, I'm appreciative of the people that have wrote those checks. It creates on the ground conservation, so it's yeah. nothing. It's nothing right against them or or impersonal. I just think
0: there's more money among the collective yep. than there is among the few. Agreed. totally agree. I think that is a. Uh, I think I hope everybody enjoyed this. I know Mike and I learned a lot. I know uh, we would love to have uh, Kurt Davis on again, hopefully before his ten years up, and maybe more commissioners in the future. Um, Like we said, we're learning. uh, They're learning a little bit from us. Please call in and voice your concerns, but do so in a conscious and articulate and polite manner. And honesty goes a long way. I think some of those things that we learned today was uh, be truthful. Uh, Don't give up your, your fight to, to fight for those rights that you believe in or the passions, but, there are certain ways to do it and there's ways that you're not going to con- convey your message in uh, in a positive way. So we really, really appreciate you coming yep. on today. Thank you. Thank you. And yep. as always, Mikey is uh, going to end us in prayer.
1: Yep. I will. And the last thing too for our listeners is everybody can go on the Arizona Game and Fish website and type in the search word commissioner. They have a commissioner form. They list all of the things that are happening under the commission and a lot of the topics we looked at you can go on there and click that audio button i think it was seven hours or something it was a long commission meeting but um as for the december uh that just happened in 2021 i think a lot of the stuff that we talked about you can relate back and actually kind of witness exactly how those commission meetings unfold so i'd encourage everybody to go check that out so with that lord god we just uh we thank you lord that you give us this opportunity lord to to manage your wildlife lord and each one of us, Lord, no matter if you're uh, on the game and fish or the commission or you're part of an organization or you just or you're a hunter and you represent yourself, Lord. Each one of us has that opportunity to to give back through your creation in the name of conservation. I just ask, Lord, that you would just bless each of our listeners, Lord, that wherever their passions and where they would like to make an impact, Lord, that they would have that spirit to go make a difference in the lives of others and the lives of all these different critters of these 800 different animals that you have bestowed on us to manage, Lord, and I just ask that you would give us that that light and then that opportunity, Lord, to, to make a difference. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. amen.